0: We pause in this moment to thank you for the blessings that flow from your good character. We we praise you for the blessing of life. We praise you for the blessing of our salvation. We praise you for the blessing of our sanctification. And we praise you in advance for the blessing of our glorification strips of sin will once and forever be removed, where we will reside with you eternally. All that we have is a gift that flows from you, our good and gracious provider. So we pause and we say, we are thankful. We are thankful for your word, a word that speaks to us. So we ask as we, your servants, are willing to hear from you. We, we open our hands and our hearts and our minds for you to speak to us in and through your word. Speak, Lord Jesus. We, your servants, are listening. It's in your name, the powerful name of Christ that we pray. Amen. If you have a copy of God's word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to James chapter 5 this morning. James chapter 5, specifically James chapter 5 verses 1 through 7 this morning. We're walking through the book of James. We've come now to James chapter 5, again, verses 1 through 7. Do you know the name of Malcolm Stevenson Forbes? It's, he's a name that really hasn't been on the scene for a while. Forbes magazine, the founder of it, he died in 1990 and in 1989. Really at the height of his wealth, he had a birthday extravaganza. Now now Forbes is a man of extreme wealth in his day, a uh, 400 square mile ranch that he owned in Colorado, a South Sea island, a palace in Tangier, a chateau in France, a mansion in London, 12 hot air balloons, a yacht. 1989 he saw the writing on the wall for his 70th 70th birthday, they had a birthday palace celebration. I mean, what do you bring? Do you think your dad's hard to buy for? I mean, what what do you buy for someone that has 12 hot air balloons? Just, I mean, so 70th birthday, 800 people on the guest list. He has to fly on three airplanes, two from New York City for the guest list, one from London. It is a who's who of the rich and the famous and influential in the late 80s. Henry Kissinger is there. Barbara Walters is there. Elizabeth Taylor is there. Six sitting governors are there. Multiple uh, CEOs who have advertised in his magazine, who he hoped to lure to advertise in his magazine. So it was a celebration to be remembered. There were 600 drummers, there were acrobats and dancers, and a cavalry charge ended with the firing of the muskets into the air by 300 Berber horsemen. Elizabeth Taylor, his good friend, stood up to toast the birthday recipient, and she did not read these words. James chapter 5, verses (laughs) 1 through 6. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you have. Kept back by fraud or crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of our host. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient. Therefore, brothers... Till the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be impatient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. This is a strong word to those original recipients of James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. There is a fierceness to this word. This word is so strong, do you remember the the novelist, early 20th century American novelist, social reformer upton Sinclair Upton Sinclair stands up before a group of ministers attributes a paraphrase that he gives of James chapter five verses one through six to, to someone that really is lost to many of our memories. Uh, she was a political anarchist uh, by the name of Emma Goldman. Upton Sinclair places James's words in her mouth. There was such an uproar that they tried to deport her for James's words. There is a strength to these words. And we must ask ourselves before we say, what do these words mean for us? What did they mean then? Who, Who was James talking to? James is writing a letter and it's a letter to those early Christians but I want to make the case that in James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 that he's not writing to Christians but he's writing to wealthy non-Christians now how am I going to take these 6 verses out and say these weren't written to the uh, original recipients that have received everything else but this is actually an aside an interlude to the wealthy non-Christian landowners of the day who were probably, because of their misuse of wealth, persecuting many poverty-stricken Christians that would have been the recipients of this letter. Now, how could I say that? Well, there's a couple of things internally that you need to see. Seven times in James's letter, he references the recipients as brothers. Go to James chapter 1, verse 2. Notice what he says. Count it all joy. Who? My brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds. Go 17 verses down the road to James chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brother, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Five more times he does that. We have this interlude, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. That is a strong denunciation of the wealthy, I believe, non-Christians. And then you notice the transition from verse 6 to verse 7. There's these strong, fierce words. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Notice the therefore in verse 7. Be patient, therefore. Notice what he comes back to: brothers. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. James is taking up a prophetic mantle. Isaiah is a good example of this. You read through the prophets, you get the major prophets, you got the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Isaiah is writing to the Israelites, but you have this place in Isaiah's uh, prophetic oracle where he speaks in chapter 13 through chapter 23 to the foreign entities like Babylon, Assyria, Ethiopia, Egypt. He, he says, This is God's word to these nations. Well, nobody in the Ethiopian government was going to read Isaiah's prophecy. It wasn't written to Egypt. It was written to the Israelites to hear this is what God thinks about these foreign entities. This is God's judgment upon them. James is taking up this prophetic mantle. The wealthy non-Christians would not have been recipients of this. But there is a temptation for the persecuted, disillusioned, many poverty-stricken Christians who are coming under the abuse of of wealthy non-Christians to, one, envy the rich or to harbor tremendous bitterness toward the rich. So James says, I'm going to give you God's perspective on these people here. I'm going to talk to you, but really I'm talking to them. And while he's talking to them, these wealthy non-Christian landowners who through the misuse of and the ill-gotten means of their wealth have ultimately persecuted those first-century Christians, we overhear the conversation, and it speaks to us as we consider how much do we resemble those wealthy non-Christians of the first century. Now, there's three principles. There's three truths that James is going to elucidate from these six verses that we need to look into the mirror and to say, do we look like this? The first one that you discover in verses 1 through 3 is a characteristic that is just this truth that there is a spiritual danger of hoarding. Verses 1 through 3, God is speaking misery. He's calling down judgment. Judgment. Because of the way that they have hoarded their resources. Weep and howl, he says. Notice that he says, there's evidence against you that will eat your flesh like fire. Why? Because you've laid up treasure. You've hoarded. Well, what have they hoarded? They've hoarded their riches that are rotted, their garments that are moth-eaten, their gold and silver that have corroded. He counters the illusion of the hoarder. The hoarder thinks that the more I have, the more free that I will actually be, the more stuff that I can surround myself with, the more self-sufficiency I will feel. But in actuality, there is a bondage to our possessions. There is this truth that our fulfillment is not primarily found through the acquisitions of more things. You get the more things, you get the next purchase, you go on the next trip, and you realize that it doesn't feel that void in your life, that there there is still the insufficiency prior to the purchase or the experience, and you realize that the more you get, the the more you really can be in bondage. Do you you know the show? It's uh, on A&E or Discover Channel. I haven't seen it in a while, but it was this kind of documentary called Extreme Hoarders. It's an intervention show. It is a show that should bring about our empathy for the people, largely their sons and daughters, that are intervening uh, on behalf of a mother or a father whose possessions have overtaken their physical residence. It, it is it, it is it is heartbreaking. The psychological struggles that a person feels when they cannot get rid of their things and their things literally overtake every square inch of their house and and there is a bed and you can't even see the bed because the possessions, often possessions that have never even been opened and everything that's been collected and never thrown away and it just overcrowds them. Now, there's some of us in this room that think that is the only example of hoarding but you need to understand, I need to understand, all of us are tempted To crowd out the illumination of and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our soul by the stuff of this world. And you don't physically have to be an extreme hoarder to spiritually feel the temptation to treasure up on earth the possessions of earth. Jesus would talk about this. You can't read these passages without hearing the echoes of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Where he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. All of us have two decisions. Now, this is oversimplification of it, but it is important for us to see this. We have decisions with what we are going to do with our financial blessing. We will be consistent givers that give a portion of our resources for the work of the gospel in our community and beyond. We will be intentional, consistent to give of tithe and offerings, or we, we will be people that have closed hands that the posture that we have to our possessions are, these are my possessions, mine. No one's going to take these from me. Open hands, closed hands, it's a posture, not first and foremost, of our physical reality, but the spiritual reality of our hearts. Now, James doesn't discourage savings. He doesn't discourage prudential provision for your family's needs. He doesn't talk anything about, well, how much is too much? He doesn't draw the line here. He is giving us a spiritual principle that we must apply in the specificity of your life and my life. And it is different depending upon the stage of your life, the season of your life, but all of us in this room, whether unemployed, underemployed, or fully employed, or retired, we will be tempted to idolize provision instead of worshiping the provider. Where we worship the gifts instead of worshiping the giver. And that is a direct correlation to the way we see the gifts that God Has giving us? Are we a catalyst for blessing, or are we a cul-de-sac for stinginess? Well, I can tell you, one of the things I love about pastoring this church is because so many of you understand the legacy of this church. To see the financial provision that has been given to each and every one of you can be stewarded in such a way that we can be a part of being a blessing, not only in Birmingham, not only in Alabama, not only in our nation, but also in this world. There are people that have been in Malaysia, been in Indonesia. We had this wonderful celebration last week of over 140 that were serving very faithfully in St. Louis, and that is not even touching Go Love Tell. We're not even touching a a five-year commitment of $5 million to five places and and the wonderful gospel-centered stewardship of resources to make an eternal difference. This is the legacy of this church. This is the reality of this church. But we are always, even with that wonderful legacy to celebrate, we're always having to look inside of our heart to say, is the Spirit of hoarding a part of the reality of my life today. James says there's a spiritual danger to hoarding. Secondly he says that there's a spiritual danger of gaining dishonest wealth. Look with me at verse 4 and verse 6. They're interconnected because we get to that first century issue historically with what James is addressing. He says behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Notice in verse 6. He specifies this is the consequence of your dishonest wealth that you 've gained, this is the injustice that has occurred you 've condemned and murdered the righteous person so here 's the context historically, we understand, looking back upon this socio economic historical context, that there was an increased concentration of land owned by a small group of landowners. The rich became more rich, the poor more poor. Farmers oftentimes didn't have their own, but they were forced to hire themselves out to the landowners. They worked day to day. There was no viable credit system. So if they are dishonest and unjust landowners, their dishonesty and injustice affected not only them, but affected their family and affected their community. Large of that first century Christian world, this is reading between some of the lines historically, were largely uh, at, at the lower socioeconomic level. And so verse 6 is the consequences of this. Verse 6 says that you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. Now scholars are divided. Was there literal murder that was occurring? And the answer is most likely not. But when you take away a person's livelihood, there are consequences for that. In that first century world, if you did not have the resources to, uh, at the end of the day, to put food on the table, I assure you, as you obviously understand, that would have consequences for children. That would have consequences for mom and dad. That would have consequences for these Christians in that first century world. And so uh, the hope of this passage comes right here in verse 4. The cries of the harvesters reach the ears of the Lord. They're echoes of Exodus. You remember the Exodus account? There you have the Israelites that are under this tyranny of Pharaoh. The injustice and the inhumane way that they're enslaved. And they've done this for centuries now. And the cries of the Israelite slaves, they reach God and he intervenes and he sends Moses. Now in this passage right here, what what James is comforting these Christians with is is that your cries of injustice, the cries of of the difficult things that you are going through, they have been noticed by God. We we oftentimes in our culture, we want to prize the mercy and the grace of God as the only way that he expresses his love. So we don't want to talk about judgment. We don't want to talk about condemnation. But I want you to understand that the flip side of God's grace and mercy is his loving character. He is lovingly, a judging God. Now you say, how can that be loving? Well, I'll tell you this, when you've met someone who has had this heinous act that has occurred to them, there is something in a community, there is something in a family that says there must be a, a, a rectitude of this. This person has committed this crime against this innocent bystander, and the person is caught in, in open sight There are multiple witnesses that have seen this person commit this heinous murder. And a family has been affected. Children have been affected. A dad is gone. There's tears. They come before the judge. And the judge says, oh, it's not that big of a deal. They'll get over it. And we cry out, that's not right. It is a part of that judge's Role within our society to say this isn't right, and there are consequences for this inhumane act. So here you have these first century Christians who are experienced the injustice of a financial system where they have no ability to change their way of life. They can't take them to the courts because they have all the control. And so what seems to be a hopeless situation, James says, guess what? God hears and there will be judgment. There will be a rectitude to this situation. He hears you. He knows what's occurring. Take heart. Now, how can this apply to I mean, it just seems to be such a specific Context? I mean, how does this even overlap in your life and in my life? Well, so many of you in, the, in this room ha- have the great responsibility in your work life of directly affecting someone that works for you or works alongside of you. You have stewardship of, of companies, maybe there's some of you in this room, or, or you have managerial responsibilities. And we have to understand that God in His common grace is he has allowed corporations, he's allowed family-run businesses and, and larger than that to make a difference not only in an individual employee's life, but in a family's life. Not only in a family's life, but in a neighborhood. Not only in a neighborhood, but in a community. Not only in the community, but in the state. And so we have to ask ourselves, as God has given us responsibility, to see that the bottom line is never the bottom line. That there's more to our responsibility than just financial gain. Uh, We can think of it this way. Many of you know of communities. And there was a flourishing community. And for a variety of reasons, that factory or that company that had really brought about flourishing and and brought about a way of life for many people was not able, for whatever reason, to be in that community and you see the pain of that community because that, that corporation, it wasn't just there making money, but it was, it was paying fair wages to an individual that lived in the community. And this fair wages enabled a, a schools to be built and enabled education to occur. And not only education to occur, but there was a continuation of the community and those dry up. And we grieve that. And it's an extreme example, but all of us have responsibility to some extent to understand that our decisions economically have consequences for those around us. How much do we, as God has given us responsibility, look like those unjust, dishonest, first century, non-Christian, wealthy landowners? There's another principle. There's much more that we could say about that and don't have time to say the spiritual danger of gaining dishonest wealth, the spiritual danger of hoarding, and what is most close to all of our actual lives is the spiritual danger of extravagance. Look with me at verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. In the original language of the New Testament, you could actually translate verse 5, lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You could translate it, they had lived delicately. The image is they've lived a soft, pampered life. James isn't saying that you can't enjoy good things. He isn't saying that uh, we have to apologize for wealth. Obviously, you can look in the Old Testament and the New Testament and see individuals that were blessed in, in a tremendous way with wealth. 1 Timothy tells us in chapter 6 that it isn't money that's the root of evil, but the love of money that is the root of evil. We can think of Abraham, we can think of Job, we can think of David, we can think of Joseph and Arimathea, we can think of Lydia, the purple seller, and Philippi as, as wonderful examples, just to name a few. But with that, the temptation sometimes is to blunt the power of these kinds of passages— To say, oh, James is talking about, don't live in luxury and self-indulgence, but really the issue is always just the love of money. And there's a bunch of rich people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, so we get off the hook. And sometimes I feel the temptation as a pastor, sometimes as I'm teaching, to sort of make everybody feel good about lifestyles. Now, again, this passage here is very close to all of our hearts. The goal of wealth that God blesses us with is never intended solely to be a vehicle for our pampering and our indulgement. The imagery is so vivid, they're like animals that are fattened for the slaughter, ignorant of the outside forces that will ultimately be their demise. James says that, so when we spend our resources solely on our wants, solely on mine and me and I, it is very difficult to not see how we resemble those first century non-Christians. They were spiritually impoverished we are spiritually impoverished. This morning I was I'm walking through 1st Timothy in my devotional life and it was so interesting that 1st Timothy chapter 6 is where I was this morning and as I was walking through that it comes to that familiar passage, the love of money is the root of all evil. And I was processing that thinking this is what I'm going to be talking about. But right before that passage in 1st Timothy 6, it talks about the danger of indulgence. And then right after it there's a specific word that Paul gives to his protege in the ministry, Timothy, about all who have resources. Now, there is something that we just need to say. In the 21st century, especially from a global perspective, we are blessed. Now, yes, some of you may be experiencing difficulty financially, You you might be unemployed right now, and it is a very difficult time for you. You might be underemployed. But in the global context, I think all of us can agree that we live in a prosperous nation at an extremely prosperous time. So when Paul writes to Timothy, he's really writing to us. This is what he says. As for the rich in this present age, you don't have to be Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg. To hear these words, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Notice the good. He, he says, Enjoy what He's given you, but don't worship what He's given you. They are to do good. This is to us. We're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. All of us have a decision to make. We can amass countless fortunes and yet at the end of our life stand with empty hands or we can seek God and have fortunes that fill countless hands. Everything that you have, no matter how hard you've worked, no matter the, the breadth of your intellect, no, no matter your commitment, everything that we have is a gift. That you got up this morning and were able to breathe, gift. That you're able to put one foot in front of the next, gift. That you're able to be able to walk in and to worship freely without the threat of any kind of governmental intrusion into what we're doing. This is a gift. All of us live As individuals that have received these tremendous gifts, none of us own this. We're all stewards. We will come to the Lord and he will ask of us, did we live with open hands or did we live with closed hands? Were we a cul-de-sac for blessing through what he's entrusted to us or were we stingy? As I've been your pastor now for a little less than a year, oftentimes people come up to me and they say things like, you know who you remind me of? Uh, They'll say, you look just like, how do you feel when somebody says that to you? Does that make you a little nervous when somebody says that? You remind me, you know the first thing that I do, it's it's probably like five to seven people that lately have come up to me and say, you look just like and uh, one person's son, who's three years old, was seeing episodes of The Office. And he, his three-year-old said, Pastor David looks like Steve. He didn't say Steve Carell, but looks like that guy, the guy in The Office. Now, maybe that's a compliment. I didn't take it as a compliment, really, to be honest with you. Uh, people come up to me and they say, you look just like. And what is the vain reaction that I have? I, I immediately get away from them and, like, I Google who that person is, and I'm just like, oh, I never think, wow, what a compliment. I always in my vanity think, do I really look like that guy? I mean, do do I have that much gray in my hair? I thought I was, thought it was, I know, you know, I know I'm not like a, like, like a marathon runner slender, but I thought I was a little more slim than that. You know, it's all those kinds of insecurities when somebody says that. Now, and I think we're looking at this passage here, We're saying that James is talking to wealthy non-Christian landowners. But the question is, is how much do we look like them? And I know, I know like all of us in this room are tempted to say, oh, we don't look at all like them. But it very well may be that this week, Even this afternoon, as we look deeply into our soul, that some of us might need to repent of our resemblance. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you this morning understanding that all of us feel the temptation. Mm. To I, me, and mine, when it comes to our resources, all of us feel the temptation of closed hands instead of open hands. You've blessed us with so much. It's very difficult for us to see the line. Where do we move from idolizing the the gift instead of worshiping the giver? Where do we move from worshiping provision instead of worshiping the provider? And and we have to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to look into our soul and to ask you through your grace and through your sanctifying power to do that work in us. We realize that we will not take any of this with us, that all that really matters is how we will invest in the eternity before us. Yes, we provide for our family. Yes, we are good stewards. But help us to see what this actually looks like in our life today. Through your grace, guide us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.